Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Tony DiMartini from SIU School of Medicine, as well as the Midwest Cardiovascular Consultants, who has been one of the fathers of CTOPCI. He has proctor, I think, more than anyone else on the planet. And we're super excited to learn from you, Tony, about how you did it. So welcome again uh, to this podcast. Thanks for having me, Manos. Appreciate it. So, Tony, tell me a little bit. I know that you've got uh, such a... Uh, a lot of experience, but how did it start for you? You've been one of the early people who learned this, and you were able to teach it to many, literally thousands of people. But how? What was your incentive for learning this? Did you uh, learn this just out of uh, residency fellowship? H- how did this happen for you? Well, it's pretty interesting for me. It was about a year and a half into practice um, in 2005. Uh, the miracle wires were coming to the States. And I had two patients who had just intractable angina and um, weren't surgical candidates for various reasons. And we tried the miracle wires. We uh, got them both open and really changed their lives. And that's what really got me started in uh, CTO is just almost out of necessity. And then, um, and did you just try them? Yeah, we had the rep there. They're like, you know, these are CTO wires. They're, uh, you should try them. You know, there's three, six, nine, twelve, and you just kind of keep going up as you fail. And um, we got lucky. Uh, quite honestly, you know, it's it was wire escalation, and one was an LED, one was a circ, and we all know that you know wire escalations maybe fifty fifty. And so getting them both open and getting lucky it kind of stoked the fire and it was off and running. So then did you do by yourself? Did you uh, ask someone to help you? How did you actually, you know, let techniques, dual injection, all these things we do routinely now, how did you learn those things? So initially I, I was working by myself um, doing wire escalation. Um, around 2008, we started doing retrograde again on our own. Uh, Dr. Suchikani came and we did three retrograde cases and, you know, it, it, it was, it was painful early with no microcatheters, um, you know, dilating the septals with one five balloons. So you can get a three, five retro to do cart and, um, microcatheters came along, um, and were available and that really changed, um, doing retrograde and then. You know, I was still working on my own, and the learning curve was – it was going up, but it was pretty flat, uh, just struggling along. And then I uh, started meeting other people in the community, uh, Bill, Craig, Aaron, Mikey. And and I think that's when it really took off for me, where my learning curve just got extremely steep. Uh, working with them, phone calls – on a regular basis. I, I talked to all four of them at least twice a week. 
discussing cases, what worked, what didn't work, failures, complications, you know, commiserating on our pain, uh, and, and just understanding what everyone was doing. And it's like you got to do five times the cases. And, uh, Perfect. And where were you at the time? How, which was your practice at the time? So at that time, I was in Springfield. Uh, so I'm in the middle of, you know, Illinois. Uh, Bill's up in Bellingham in a small hospital. Uh, so, you know, it was, you know, these small hospitals trying to figure this out and, and move forward. So it was, it was, and then, you know, Stingray comes along uh, making giving us an option antigrade that we just didn't have a solution to. Uh, so it, it was an amazing process, an amazing learning curve, uh, learning from each other and uh, getting better. And then how did you handle the stress, right? Because you started doing this again in the era where nothing was really standardized. 2005, 2008 were still the early days of, of this procedure. Was it stressful for you? It was very stressful. Um, you know, I was a, a very junior partner. Uh, my senior partners were uh, had a very close eye on me with uh, not only success rates, but with complications and and issues moving forward. Uh, we did our best to try and pick cases where we, you know, had the highest chance of success and the patients would be the most um, improved. Uh, but that was hard, you know. It, you start getting a little success and then the senior partners start pushing more complex patients with not as extreme symptoms and, uh, and then questioning if, if you fail. So, and, and, you know, early your failure rate was much higher than it is today. We didn't have the equipment and the options. So the cases were a lot longer, um, a lot of just wire based, uh, procedures and, you know, as the techniques evolved, the success rate improved, and and then it became more accepted, and then it became more mainstream, uh, and then people were happier. And then, and then I know that after the Stingray, you know, became available and uh, Boston got it, you took um, a year and you actually proctored pretty much everyone around the U.S. So tell me a little bit about this. That must have been a tremendous learning experience for the people you taught. Uh, but how did this happen and how did it work for you? Uh, so, you know, I'd been proctoring for Bridgepoint, um, for Stingray and CTO. And then um, when Boston purchased them, uh, they needed a proctor uh, or more proctoring. And we had discussed doing it for full time. So we just came to an agreement that I would do that full time for two years. And, um, it, it was, it was amazing. You know, we were, I spent probably 80, 85% in the U S uh, 15 to 20% outside the U S proctoring. And quite honestly, I mean, you know, I, I, it was great to be able to teach people and get people better and get their patients better. But I, I learned an amazing amount doing that um you know you you learn things as you're as you're doing the procedures how things feel in your hands um you know you can start feeling plaque versus subintima versus lumen and kind of just knowing where you were by how it felt but when i was proctoring i couldn't touch and so i really got to learn 
teach myself how to feel with my eyes and understand where the wires and equipment was based on how the wire was behaving. And so that it was a great learning experience for me. Um, and it also really learned the thought process of what's next, because when you're not the one working and not focusing on what's going on, you're, you're able to think about if this doesn't work, what are we going to do next? And, you know, it really taught me how to multitask. So, I think after all the time with proctoring, my thought process was better. My anticipating what was next was better. And, and I think I actually became a lot more efficient just by teaching and not touching, which, which is kind of counterintuitive, but it was, it was really a good experience. And then when you walk into a lab and you saw people uh, working, how, did you adjust your training based on their baseline? Did you adapt? How, could you tell who are going to be the good operators or not? Yeah, by, probably by the second year, I was able to know probably within about 10 minutes what, what the day was going to bring. Um, you know, based on the discussion when we review the film, uh, based on how they seek guides and, um, and just the thought and the conversation, you kind of knew who was going to be good and, and who was dabbling. Uh, you know, it's when, when the plan is to go retrograde and it takes 30 minutes to wire the open led, it, you know, it's going to be a long day. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and uh, you know, I think the other big thing is, is, is early on, you figure out what the staff's opinion is. And uh, there, there's definitely situations where there were really good operators, but their staff was against them. And uh, so that you know, a lot of time was spent just subtly letting the staff know that it's the right thing to do um, so that they, I mean, we've all worked uh, where you're the person to your right is sighing and, and it, it's very frustrating and, and it gets depressing and you're hearing the sighs and, and so just taking that away and letting the operator work, um, a lot of times help them out more than anything else. And then um, are there any stories out of your proctoring that you, you're stuck with you that some people that that great or, or not so great? I, I think the, the story or the time that is, is, sticks with me the most is when we uh, went to China for the first time. So we were going to Guangzhou and Wuhan and I had no idea what to expect. And so we were two days in each place. And the two things that really stuck with me were we did 20 cases in four days, uh, which was one thing, uh, which were all successful, which was, you know, just a miracle. But the other thing that was just amazing was how much coronary disease is there. We did, it was in January that we went. And of the 20 cases, the oldest film was December. So the oldest film was a month. So they had 20 CTOs in a month that they put on. So I, I can't imagine how many CTOs are out there that weren't done or were two months or three months um, old. So just the, the burden of disease that they were able to get 20 cases in a month 
and the fact that we did 20 cases in four days. <laughs> so highly efficient labs, I presume, things turnover is quick, operators are experienced and moving fast. Yeah, the, the turnover is amazing. Um, it's just, it's a machine um, and multiple labs. And, you know, when you have 20 labs, it's, uh, you, you can bounce pretty easily. <laughs> No, this is this is as you say different scale of things. Uh, but as as of now, after all this experience that you have, how do you now plan or prepare for a case? Do you have any specific things and specific timings? How do you prepare for your next sitio? So it's it's film review, um, studying the film, uh, and I think the important thing is not to glance at the film and say, okay, this is you know my primary approach because you can do that in. 60 seconds. I think the big thing is not just studying your primary option, but knowing your second, third, fourth option. Uh, we're going to do this case, antigrade. If that fails, we're going to use this septal. If if that doesn't work, we're going to go to this septal. If that doesn't work, we're going to go to this epicardial. And knowing the views that you see them in, because I think there's, there's several commodities within CTO when you're doing the procedure, one is radiation, another is contrast, and then there's always time. And, you know, if you're trying to figure out which angle shows you the takeoff of the collateral in the case and you're taking four pictures, you're spending your contrast, you're spending your radiation on information you already have. So if you have that information in your head and you know exactly where you're going to go, um, you can save both the radiation and the contrast. And a lot of times, especially with septals, you don't even need to spend the, the contrast. You can go to the angle, know where it takes off, and, and just start moving. So how long do you actually spend, you know, with all this experience that you have for every specific patient? I'll probably spend five to ten minutes uh, just studying the film, going through every picture. Uh, longer if they have... Uh, graphs longer if they have old films. Uh, you know, I, I try and find the absolute oldest film they have uh, to see what the arteries course was before it was closed, uh, get an understanding of the collaterals if it was closed in the past, where the collaterals were then, because collateral patterns change. Um, you know, maybe five years ago they had a really good septal, but now they've developed the dominant epicardial and you don't see the septal. And you go back far enough, you're like, oh, there is a septal. So I know I can blindly surf that and probably connect without having to go through the risk of the epicardial. Uh, another thing I think is really important is, is really talking to the patient and understanding their symptoms. Uh, someone with class four angina, you may do things you wouldn't do in someone with class two angina. Uh, you know, it, it's all about risk benefit. So I may not take on a tortuous epicardial in someone with class two angina, but in someone with, who's just miserable and, and isn't able to do anything, then you know the discussion with them is different in and what risk they're willing to take on to get better. There's a lot of dynamic uh, thinking, right? Because as the case progresses, I guess you incorporate all the history and the patient symptoms you say with the anatomy and the plan. So 
do you do, how often do you change your plan during the cases? How often do I? I'm sorry. Uh, how often do you actually change your plan? Like when you are starting a CTO, you said you have three or four or five plans to do. How often does your first one, your first choice, so to speak, work? And how often do you have to change? I would say probably 60 to 70% of the time our primary approach works. Um, and then the rest of the time it's, you know, that it didn't work. We're going to move. And how quickly and we change depends on what our next option is. You know, if, if we're Antigrade and we plan to do Stingray and it fails, if my next option is a really nice septal, we're going to move to that really fast. If my next option is a tortuous epicardial, we're going to spend a lot more time attempting Antigrade. Um, so people say move and change, but I, I really think the change depends on what your next option is. If, if the next option's terrible, you're going to stick with it. Um, if you have a flush right and you can't get through the septal, you, you really can't change and go antigrade. You, you have to spend your whole time retrograde. Um, and so, you know, how you change depends on your next option. Sure. And then how about uh, being nervous? Are you getting stressed out or nervous about cases now, or are you now feeling fairly relaxed with all your experience and the cases you've done? I, I, I think I'm finally comfortable with it um, at the beginning. Um, you know, when, when you're in the case and you're failing and, and you, now you're going to go through an epicardial, you know, you, you always get nervous and uncomfortable going through an epicardial uh, just, just because the penalty is there. Uh, but I, I think I have finally, after, what, 18 years of doing this, have, have finally... I'm not nervous before the case. Early on, there was no doubt. I was, I, it was okay. in my head about what if I fail? What if we have a complication? What are people going to think? What am I going to tell the family? Uh, and so all those things are running through your head, and it, it just puts a lot of clutter in your head. Uh, but it, it didn't seem to get better, even though I knew it was a hindrance. <laughs> didn't seem like it made it go away. And then... Uh so, and then do you, um, when things get tough in the lab, do you have any techniques that make you more relaxed or more able to focus? Some things that you do that uh, help you through the tough cases that you do? I, there's probably one thing that I do that uh, actually Mark Goodwin taught me. So, if we're really struggling, but we're in a stable place, I will actually just scrub out and go go through the film, huh. take my lead off, take five minutes, just clear my head and then scrub back in. Uh, and, and for me, that's been a really great technique. It allows me to get out of my own head, uh, clear my thoughts, go back through the film, look and see, all right, could I have done this here? Could I try this there? And, and then go back with a, a clear head and fresh hands and and just move forward. So that's that's the one thing that I do that has really helped me. And do you put a time limit on your cases? Let's say if two hours in or three hours you haven't crossed, do you stop? Or you, if there's an option, you keep on trying? I, I, if, you know, 
it's pretty rare we have radiation issues. And it's been a long, long time since I've had any contrast issues. So I'll move forward as long as I still have options. Uh, if, you know, if I'm an hour into the case and I've reached futility, we'll stop. If we're three hours into the case and there's still options I haven't explored um, and the radiation and contrast are good, we'll march forward. Um, you know, there, there are times when you've exhausted a lot of options, uh, not all of them, but you have mental fatigue. And then I think that's the right time to stop when you start having mental fatigue um, and bring them back. Because when you bring them back, you know, you've already eliminated a lot of options. Uh, and so you can start with the next option that you had and, and just with a clear head and, and not being tired. But I, I do think operator fatigue during CTOs is a real thing and, and, and it does cause people to struggle. Perfect. And do you have any cases from the thousands you've done that actually stick with you that taught you quite a few things up to the date, good or bad ones? Yeah, I, I would say probably the, uh, um, you know, the successes, I don't, I don't know why this is. It seems like you forget the successes, but remember the failures. <laughs> um, uh, but one case that really sticks with me is, is a circ we did and we had gone retrograde and we got it open and everything went really well. And he was just getting unstable. He was dropping his pressure and and we couldn't figure out why he did not have a perf. He didn't have access issues. And um, ultimately, you know, he had gone into the case with moderate MR. And just the time we had spent in the CERC system, his MR had gotten worse. And um, even with the artery open, it, the, he was past the time uh, where his uh, pap muscle was going to recover. And, and he decompensated and, you know, really learned from that about, you know, really knowing everything, the valve structures. And, you know, if there's any question, uh, we just do a right heart cath and, and monitor their, their PA diastolic during the case. But, uh, Perfect. yeah, the, the failures you always remember and you always, you, unfortunately, you learn from them. That patient's not, you know, doesn't. Uh, yeah, and actually that's a but. And that's a consistent thing. I must say that pretty much everyone I've spoken to, including myself, I mean, we do remember the tough cases or the failures or the complications much more than the good ones for, for good or for worse. Maybe that's a good thing because then, as someone said, we kind of learn from those people and then apply the lessons to the uh, people uh, going forward. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of uh, your being able to do all this, the number of cases you do, and I know you do a high volume of consults and uh, other other clinical work as well. How do you keep yourself fit and in good shape to be able to do this uh, procedures and the clinical work as well? Well, that, that's making uh, the assum assumption that I am fit and in good shape. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, we've recently kind of transitioned a little bit, um, and are just spending more uh, free time and uh, away from work. And, and uh, I will say that that has helped me tremendously uh, with the mental aspect. Uh, there's, you know, what we do is, is exhausting mentally uh, with the procedures, with 
clinic, with hospital work. Uh, there's a lot of time. There's a lot of thinking. Uh, there's a lot of sick people. And, and it can really mentally start wearing on you. And, and just the mental breaks, um, being away and spending time uh, with family has really helped. I, I will say in the past, I have gotten in places where it is plow forward for months on end and, and you just become mentally exhausted. Uh, so I, I think just mental health and, and taking the breaks and it has been the best thing for me and learning to do that because we're, we're not exactly trained to do that. So you clearly have made a, a big transition and that's actually phenomenal because uh, every time I ask people, you know, what do you plan to do later on? Are you planning to take some time off? Um, it looks like you already kind of created a setting that works well for you. So you take some time off and then that recharges you and then you come back. And then are you planning to keep on doing this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Um, 20, 30, 40 is definitely pushing uh, well beyond my expectations. Uh, we're probably looking at another five to 10 years. Um, and and what we're doing, you know, it's, it, it's really for me now, it's boluses. So we work hard in bursts and then we take time off. And um, it, it seems like the timing is right now really well. Um, we're about, just about the time I'm getting tired uh, we get a week off. And so that's that's been, right now it is a very comfortable uh, practice model for us. Um, I don't know how that's going to be in 10 years, uh, but for right now it, it, it's working really well. And then how, how would you say um, is responsible for the success you've had? You've had tremendous success in, in all the aspects, you know, teaching, clinical work, it impacted, you know, thousands of people around the world. So what do you think was the secret sauce for your success? I actually think it's it's the community. Um, having people to talk to, having um, to share ideas, and have, you know, people out there that when you do have issues and you do have complications that uh, they can talk you off the ledge. Um we learned fairly early that, you know, nothing that when you're talking with someone who's had an issue, nothing you say is going to make it better. Uh, only time helps that. Uh, but just to, to have someone to listen and understand what you're going through. You know, if, if you talk to your, your parents, they, don't, they have no idea what you're talking about. Um, if you talk to, for a lot of people, their spouses have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, so it's just someone to listen who knows what you're going through. Um, and then also, you know, sharing ideas on how to teach, how to get better. Um, I really think it's, it's a group effort. Everyone helps everyone else and, and everyone gets better. Uh, that, that's for me been the biggest thing. And then. Uh, do you have any things you do outside uh, medicine, outside the cath lab? Are the things that you enjoy doing that keep you, um, you know, happy and uh, in good shape? Uh, traveling, we we really enjoy traveling. Uh, we've done more in the U.S. this year. Uh, previously, it was more outside the U.S., but a lot of U.S. travel this year. Uh, I'm hiking. The uh, enjoy reading. 
and I am a enormous Raiders fan. Uh, so this year has been quite painful, <laughs> but uh, still a big Raiders fan. Uh, so we do uh, we go to about four or five games a year. Uh, so that that's been really relaxing and fun, stressful at times uh, because of their poor play, but uh, still still love my Raiders. <laughs> Uh, but reading and traveling and um, just spending time with my wife. Uh, it's just been, it's been great. And, and any, any favorite books or, or movies that uh, you remember? Your... Uh, probably my favorite book is Great Expectations. Uh, it's, I just love the flow of the book and, and, and how it goes along. I, I just really love that book. Uh, my favorite movie, probably Elf. <laughs> <laughs> very, very timely. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, Elf and uh, Happy Gilmore are probably my two favorite movies. So, <laughs> not a lot of serious movies. Perfect. Well, you need a break, right? After all the work, so. And how about uh, being, you know, what are you most proud of? There are many things, teaching, clinical work, many other things. What are you most proud of from everything you've done? You know, they, uh, when I came back to Springfield, we, they were just starting a fellowship program. And so our very first fellowship class um, was when I started back in Springfield. Uh, and it's amazing my wife and I talked about it and she, she was like, you know, it's, we're both like, you know, you're, you're good at, you can teach interventionalists, but do you have the patience to teach a fellow? And, um, and I really, really enjoy it uh, uh, to watch them grow and get better and, and become a cardiologist. I, I have really enjoyed that. Um, and, and I also just really it makes me happy when someone I've proctored calls and says, you know, we had a great case today. Uh, and thank you. And that, that just, that does make me happy. It, you know, it, they're getting people better. Um, and I had a small part in that and, and that does really make me happy. So if you had someone who comes to you and asks you, okay, I want to, learn complex PCI or CTO PCI, and I'm interested in that, you know, fellow early, late, uh, what would be your advice for them? Which are the key things they should do in 2022, 2023 now that it's going to help them down the line? Go to conferences and watch the live cases. Uh, live cases, there's active problem solving. There's um, discussions with a panel. And you can hear the most options in a short period of time. Um, a lot of these cases are now available. You know, you can go to TCTMD and you can watch old cases. And I think those are great places to learn where you don't have to commit a certain amount of time or two days at a conference where you can watch it one case at a time and, and really just absorb that. And, and you don't have to, you know, you can commit your hour and learn. Um, if you're early in practice and it's a good environment, push yourself. Um, with, you know, it's a common saying, you get, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, if you're 
comfortable with everything you're doing, you're probably not getting better. You're um, resting on what you know and what you're comfortable with and not doing techniques you haven't done before, not trying new things. Uh, so I, I think, you know, pushing yourself, challenging yourself, watching cases, and, you know, not not sitting in the room having a cup of coffee talking to your buddy, but actually watching the case and, and absorbing what the discussion is. I think those are the ways that you get better. And then um, for people who learn this and they get complications, you know, early on, it's much harder, obviously, to later on. Any advice on how to handle the complications and the frustrations that inevitably come with the space? As a, I think there's a lot of things with complications. Uh, the first is, is dealing with it in the lab. Uh, one, understanding why it happened. Um, so you don't do it again. Sometimes it's, you're tired and you make poor decisions. You take a shortcut and you, and, and you get a complication. Um, but the first thing is dealing with it in the lab. Um, not freezing up, not getting nervous. Uh, it's hard, but you know, that, that complication needs your full attention and it needs your thought process and you have to not be thinking about what your partners are going to think. You need to get that patient out of trouble and you need to focus. Um, once you get the patient out of trouble, you, know, you learn from it, you get better, you talk about it with others to figure out what you could have done differently, other ways to manage the complication. And, and then the, the last thing is, is managing the thought process of the cath lab and your partners. Uh, and, you know, running away from it is not the answer. Uh, telling people this is rare, it never happens, uh, because it does happen. Um, you know, we, we meet with the cath lab once a month and discuss complications and different ways to manage it and are very upfront with it. Um, I have less issues with my partners now um, in complications. Uh, most people understand what we're doing, um, the risk involved. And, and I, I, I'm fortunate I work in two labs where if there is an issue, um, everyone comes to help. It, it's not the uh, scatter you see in some labs where everyone runs away uh, and you're left on an island. So I, I think that's a culture thing where, you know, it's you can always uh, beat someone up later about their complication, uh, but dealing with it in the acute here and now, I got to do what's best for the patient and everyone needs to come together. Uh, so, but I, I think the biggest thing is just to keep your focus uh, and, and understand that the most important thing is not what others think. It's not what what's the review going to say. It's get the patient out of trouble. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks again. This is uh, phenomenal advice. I mean, clearly you have a tremendous experience both in doing and teaching those. And I think people would love to hear what um, you're just saying and, and learn from that. So as a final, um, as a final few minutes, if you have any final uh, words of wisdom for anyone interested in this area? Well, I don't know if I ever have words of wisdom, but, uh, I, you know, <laughs> my, my career has been built on uh, friendships and learning from others. 
and I think I've, I know I've gotten where I am just because of everyone helping each other. So people who are starting out, you know, find mentors, find people that you can talk with, that you can discuss cases with, uh, people who are there when you have complications so you can just commiserate. But um, don't try and do it on an island. Um, build a community, build your friends, and build your practice and get people better. Wonderful. Again, thanks so much, Tony. Incredible words of advice. Thanks for, again, being a great friend and, and helping out on many times when things are getting into a pinch. And I think that reflects not just myself only, but many, many people again all around the U.S. and around the world. So thanks for everything again and look forward to seeing you when you're not on vacation anymore. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Manos. It was good to see you and um, looking forward to seeing you in February. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast. 